you didn't hear, we're doing a four-week sermon series on God and sex. And I want to give us some ground rules uh, as we head into this. One, um, if you have kids and you're wanting them to hear this kind of stuff, um, we're going to leave this up to parents' discretion. But I do want to say it is probably going to be PG-13, if that makes sense. Um, Some of the things that we're going to say up front may not be helpful for young children to hear. Um, And... um, So parents, use your discretion. The other thing I want to say is um, there are going to be things that are said from up front, and the temptation in our own hearts, you know, 1 John talks about our our hearts condemn us in moments. I, I want to say that this is a safe place, and the intention of this is to bring freedom, not to bring guilt or shame. And I know that, that in this room, all of us have experienced in some way, shape, or form uh, sexual brokenness. Either we're wrestling with it personally, or, it's, or, or some kind of sexual brokenness has been done to us. And the, 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 the purpose of the sermon series is not to point shame or to make us feel downtrodden. It's to bring freedom in our lives. Um, and so... This, the reason why I'm saying this is because we are a safe place, and if you are wrestling with any of this, these things, um, that's maybe a good thing that God's revealing those things to you, and we as a leadership team, as pastors, leaders, people who will pray with you, um, whatever it is, the goal is for you to find freedom and uh, for God to, to, to bring you from out of something into freedom, and so we want to help you however we can. If that means counseling, if that means prayer, if that means accountability, if, if it means conviction or confession, whatever that is, this is a safe place, okay? And so I just want to blanket this sermon series and tell us, you guys, this is not to bring shame, this is not to bring condemnation to us, but to align our hearts back to the truth of who Jesus is and what he views as healthy sexuality, okay? You guys all right with that? All right, so let's get into it. Ready? Here we go. Let me start my timer. Um, The reality is our nation is probably super confused about sexuality. Everybody has a different opinion on sexuality. Um, It's it's a polarizing topic. It it separates families. It separates uh, people groups. Uh, It separates cultures. And in this nation right now, we are wrestling with a identity crisis of sexuality, and it is changing so exponentially quick that it's, it's dizzying to try to keep up with the terms, to try to keep up with the culture, to try to keep up what is, what is appropriate, what's socially acceptable to, uh, to, to say or not to say. And the goal of this morning is to, for us to, as Christians, Help us understand what does the Bible say about sexuality. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to start at the beginning. And that's a good place to start. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to the book of Genesis. And if you don't know where Genesis is, that's the very front of your Bible. Genesis means the beginning. And we're going to start in chapter 1 of Genesis. And this is what the word of the Lord says 
in uh, verse 26. We're going we're gonna to jump around a little bit. And this morning is going to be less of a preach, okay? It's going to be a little bit of a teach this morning. So there's going to be a lot of scripture, a lot of terms. We're going to be giving some details and, and stats, but don't get lost in that stuff. So uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is a little rabbit trail, but here is one of the first evidences of the Trinity Uh, God speaks to himself in the us form. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are there in creation. Uh, You're welcome. That's free. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, amen, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth Everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and the sixth day. So here we have creation, everything that we have now. Man's been created on the sixth day. God says, this is very good, the way I've orchestrated this. All right, now skip down to chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. And we, we see here God creates man, but now we're going to like dive in a little bit closer to the specifics of how this worked out in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no sp- small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord, uh, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. All right? Uh, And then skip down to verse 18 through 25. I know we're jumping around here a bit, but you'll see where we're going here. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, and that was its name, the man, uh, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But I wonder how long that took. That is a carpenter ant. That's a bullet ant. That's a fire ant. Do we have fire ants here? No, I don't know. Anyways, just like, can you imagine like sitting there like dit, 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 oh, this little okay. Anyways, sorry, I get sidetracked sometimes. Then the man gave to all the livestock, uh, verse twenty, and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is like the first love poem, all right? This is like a song that Adam sings when he sees. It's like Kelly seeing Marianne for the first time. He says, yes, this at last 
is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, flesh she shall be called woman, or whoa, man, right? Woo! Because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both, what? Naked and were not ashamed. Amen. Hallelujah. All right. So, why did we read this whole story of creation? Why do we, why do we come back here? Because it gives us the intention of sex. It gives us a lot of ground rules. Uh, it gives us a starting point or a foundation of us understanding sexuality. God, what does he think about sex? What should we think about sex? How should we relate to one another? And there's five things that I want to point out here in this uh, creation story that help us approach sexuality. So what we're going to be doing this morning is kind of a broad overview of God and sex, Um, and to help us understand that there's some things that we have gotten wrong as we've gone along, as as, uh, life has progressed, as the fall, where we're going to read here in a moment, but what sin enters the world, what we've got it wrong, but this is the intention. And so here are the five things, and these these will be helpful for you as we continue to understand this, so you might want to take note of these. Number one. God created humanity in his image. God created man in his image. It says, let us create man in our image. Now, what does that mean and why is that important? One, it doesn't mean that we necessarily look physically like God. Although you may look at me this morning and go... Right? Ha ha. Okay. But it doesn't mean that necessarily that God has a, a physical form like we do, but it's the sense of his essence, his value, his worth he poured into humanity. Um, and so, therefore, this is why we don't murder. This is why murdering is wrong. Because each human, whether they're a believer or non-believer, created is, is created in God's image. And so, therefore, we all have value. We all have worth. This is why we say no to abortion. This is why we na- say no to genocide. This is why we say no to infantic- uh, infanticide. This is why we say no to et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and this is why we don't eat each other, Okay. Like, we're not like animals running around and, because we have value. We have special worth. So not only were we created in God's image, but number two, we were created as binary sexes. That word binary, right? You, you hear that used today? Like, oh, we're not binary. We're not uh, zeros and ones. You can't define me as uh, a male or female. That's not what the word of God says. The word of God says that Man was created either as male or female. And so this means that although men and women are equal in dignity and value and worth because we were created in the image of God, we are different because we are different in nature and we have a different role as men and women. We complement one another. Number three, I like this one. God created sex. Yes. Sorry, kids. My kids are like cringing. They're like, dad. So I want to say this. Sex is not the result of an evolutionary desire or instinct in humanity to procreate. It's not like, well, we had to figure out because 
the, the, the survival of the fittest? How can we continue this thing called the human race? And because we're humans, we want to dominate. We decided that we're going to procreate, and that's the reason why we have sex, is just so we can create mere humans. That is a product, and that is one reason for sex, but that is not the reason. The reason for sex is, is that God created sex. Um, and you even t- see God tell Adam and Eve here, he says, go be fruitful and multiply. So for those of us who are married this morning, you can think of it as mandatory fun time, okay? That's what I think, mandatory fun time, all right? That's what sex is, but it's God. And number four, sex was created for the confines of marriage only. Sex was created for the confines of marriage only. Let's get a little nerdy here, but sex and any forms of sex outside of marriage is sinful. Uh, In the New Testament, the Greek word uh, used for anything outside of sex, it's called sexual immorality, is the Greek word porneia, and that's where we get the word, the English word pornography from. Um, It's translated as sexual immorality, and this encompasses all sorts of sexual sin. Uh, It's including homosexuality, fornication, adultery, prostitution, incest, rape, polygamy, pornography, pedophilia, oral sex, phone sex, cyber sex, etc. Anything outside of marriage, this is considered illegitimate forms of sexual activity within the human race. And then number five, marriage is between one man and one woman only. As the definition of marriage. We see this in the book of Genesis here, that God defines sex and its relationship for us to one another on biblical standards. I mean, to think that God created sex for some of us in this room is cringy for us, right? But it's such a beautiful thing that God sets, sets apart for us as humans Something that we're going to learn in a couple weeks is such a gift to us. But the story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end with God creating sex for Adam and Eve and for humanity and saying, well, okay, this is great. Okay, now just, you know, we're all just live happily ever after. No, unfortunately what happens is, turn back to your Bibles, Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13. And this is what it says. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open, and, you, and uh, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her stupid husband who was with her, and he ate. So, I mean, Adam's just sitting there, right? Like, Ooh, okay, you know, I mean, come on. Sorry, the Bible doesn't say stupid husband. It just says her husband. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Continue reading verse 8. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So here we have this perfect utopia of human relationship, of creation in all the world, human to animal, animal to human, human to plants, plants to humans, all of creation is in harmony and perfect, and there's, there's no cringiness, there's no awkwardness, there's no understanding of shame or guilt, there's just perfect human, uh, human loving kindness going on, and then all of a sudden, sin enters the world and breaks that chain. Sin enters the world and brings destruction. And not only does it bring relational dysfunction in, you know, in fighting, but it breaks one of the most sacred gifts that God had given humanity, and that's in the area of sexuality. And it continues today. The reason why every single person in this room has either abused or been abused by some form of sexuality is because of what happened here in Genesis 3. The reason why we see billboards, the reason why we see stuff on TV, the reason why we interact with our culture in such a heightened sexual way is because of what happened here in Genesis chapter 3. And I want to suggest to us this morning, there's, there's two problems that come out of the fall when it comes to sexuality, and it's these things here this morning. We either view sex now, because of the fall, as either God or gross. Sex has become either a God to us, or it's become gross to us. The fact that we're even talking about sex in a church, for some of us, is like, that's gross. You know why that's a problem for some of us? It's because we don't talk about sex enough in the church. This should be the place where we talk about sex all the time. This should be the place where we're able to define sexuality, where we're able to take a stance, where we're able to not feel strange about sex because we've been redeemed from Genesis 3. We've been set free from the brokenness of the curse of Genesis 3 for those of us who call ourselves Christians. But yet it still feels weird. So let's unpackage these two things this morning is either sex as God or sex as as gross. So sex as God, I want to give us some stats this morning that will prove my point. And to be honest with you, some of these stats are a couple of years old. Um, and so I'm going to assume that it's only gotten a little bit worse in these stats. All right. I'm going to specifically talk about pornography and sex as God. Here's what are some stats. This is two years ago. In the U.S., pornography revenues over $15 billion per year. That's just in the United States. Man. I'm sorry. I didn't think this was going to affect me. It's pretty sad. 
More money than football, baseball, and basketball combined. Pornography sites account for over 12% of all internet sites. 90% 90 of children between the age of 8 and 16 have viewed pornography on the internet. The average age of the first viewing of pornography is 11-year-olds. The largest consumer pornography in the internet viewing is boys between the age of 12 and 17. Youth, young people with significant exposure to sexuality in the media or pornography were shown to be considerably more likely to have had sex at ages between 14 and 16. And the median age of sex for the first time in the U.S. is now 16 years old. In the church, 57% of pastors say that pornography addiction is the most sexually damaging issue to the congregation. I would probably say that's a low percentage. The most popular day of the week for viewing pornography for those who consider themselves Christians is Sunday. One survey revealed that at least one-third of pastors admitted to viewing internet pornography regularly. We have a sex-as-God problem. And it's not just in the world, it's in the church. And I know those are some heavy stats, and I'm not saying those things to shock us. I'm saying those things to give us a little bit of reality of where we stand as a culture. And to see that the Genesis 3 factor is alive and well. I want to say something a little bit shocking here this morning, though. The problem is not that we have a pornography addiction problem. It's not that we have a sex addiction problem or a adultery problem, et cetera, et cetera. I would say that this morning, the problem is an idolatry problem. What do I mean by that? The reason pornography, adultery, rape, incest, whatever, sexual brokenness exists is because in the hearts of mankind, We are idolaters. Look at Ezekiel chapter 14, verses one through five. This is what the prophet Ezekiel tells the elders of Israel. And this estrangement between God and the people, he says this, then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me and the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set them stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore, speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitudes of his idols that I may lay hold of the heart's of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. 
Why do I say this is an idol worship problem instead of just like if let's just get rid of pornography. Like let's start a let's start a ban on pornography. Let's start a campaign and try to like destroy every uh, pornographic company out there, you know, like any, anything like that. Let's start a campaign. Let's make it illegal. Will that solve the problem? No, it will not. Why? Because there's idols in our heart. And it goes back to Genesis 3. The reason why I read that is not just to see that sin entered the world. The reason I read that is for us to understand that we do the same thing that Adam and Eve did. We look at the tree And for some reason, we say, all of this good stuff that God gave us, the plentiful, the the abundance of everything that we will ever need, I'm going to shift my eyes away from that and turn to the one thing that I'm not supposed to enjoy. And I'm going to get my satisfaction, not from what God gave me, but I'm going to get my satisfaction in the things that are sinful. And I'm going to create an idol out of that. And it's going to become God. Sex is God. See, what we do is we take a good thing and we make it a God thing and it becomes a bad thing. That's what idol worship is. And that's what we've done with sex. And some of us in this room wrestle with that. We view sex as salacious and it's, oh, I just can't get enough of the thought of some kind of sexual encounter, some kind of viewing on the internet, some kind of thought that runs through my mind, some kind of fantasy. I just can't get enough of that because what I've done is I've exchanged the good things, the gifts that God has given me for the illegitimate things and I've replaced them with that is my satisfaction, that is my pleasure, whether it's pornography, whether it's adultery, whether it's fantasy in your mind, whether it's reading trashy books, I don't know. And we've created idols in our hearts. And God tells the prophet, he says, you guys have these idols in your heart and it's estranged you and I. It's separated us. And we view God as sex. In other words, The reason we view God as sex is because we don't view God as God. Let me say that again. The reason we view God, sex as God, is because we don't view God as God. We believe a lie like Eve did that God is not enough, and so we fall for the empty promise of the idol. Here's the beautiful thing. If you are struggling with this idea that sex is God. God is glorious. So guess what? You don't have to look elsewhere. God is glorious. He is more than enough. I've heard uh, John Piper talk about this whole desire in our hearts, and he says to the fact, and I'm probably misquote him here, but it's not that our desires are too great as humans. It's not that we have these big, huge desires. It's that our desires are too weak, and we settle for the crumbs. C.S. Lewis says it's like telling a child, hey, you can have a vacation on the beach. You're going to have this beach house and you're going to be able to go on a vacation there and the kid's like, nah, I don't want that. I just want to make mud pies in the dirt. This dirt pie is satisfying me. And that's what happens when we take 
sex as God, we settle for the crumbs. We settle for something that only lasts for a moment when God says no, like what we're going to do this next week and we're going to fast. We're going to turn our desires away from our stomachs or maybe our eyes and whatever it is, and we're going to turn our desires towards the only one who truly satisfies, and that's God. And the problem for us here this morning, if we view, if we have a sex as God is sex problem, it's because we don't understand the greatness of who our God is. I heard somebody say this week, you worship your way into pornography or sexual brokenness, and you must worship your way out of it. What does that mean? It means we're always worshiping. And we decide what we're going to worship. And if we worship sex as God, what we're doing is we're putting that as our central desire. And the only way to shift your heart from sex as God is to view God as God. You worship into pornography and you worship your way out of pornography. You worship into sexual fantasy and you worship your way out of sexual fantasy. You guys okay? All right. I know this is kind of heavy stuff. So, but, and, and again, this is not to bring condemnation. If, if you're wrestling with sex as God, man, we want to help you. <laughs> we're, all, we're all sexually broken. We're all, we, we're, none of us are perfect. Um, and so this is a safe place. Let me say this. If you are wrestling and you, you, You've, uh, you've tried to worship your way out of it and you feel like it's not working, let me just give you some practical advice too. You, you may have heard this in a different illustration, but I like this illustration better. It's the sumo illustration. And I have men come to me every once in a while and say, man, I'm wrestling with pornography. Just, you know, I do well for a little bit and then I give in again and I feel guilty and I go through this cycle. And maybe it's not pornography. I don't know what it may be for you out there. It could, but whatever sexual, I want to say this. There's two sumos. You know what a sumo wrestler is? A sumo in the ring. And what ends up happening is the bigger, fatter, heavier sumo is the one that ends up winning. If you have a 100-pound sumo going against a 250-pound sumo, which one's going to win? The one that's eating all the Japanese dumplings all the time is going to win. The one that you're feeding all the ramen noodles to is going to win because he's going to outweigh the scrawny little sumo. And so if you're wrestling with these things, don't feed the sinful sumo. Don't give in to it. How do you not feed it? You tell somebody, hey, I'm struggling, I'm wrestling. Help me, keep me accountable. Meet with me, pray with me. Overcome your fear of shame that we're gonna look down and you go, oh my gosh, I cannot believe you did this. this." That is a lie from the enemy. And when you do that, you're feeding the wrong sumo and he's gonna knock the, the good sumo out of the ring every time. Practically feed the right sumo so he can and then, you know what ends up happening? Is the bigger sumo ends up winning, but then the desires of the right sumo are always there. And when that little scrawny temptation comes up, you're like, I've been feasting on God. This, this junk, this crap doesn't even satisfy me. It doesn't even hold a place in my heart. The more that you feed 
the more that you surrender, the more that you give your life over to holiness and righteousness, you find true satisfaction. All right, number two. Not only did the fall produce a, a sex as God, but it also produced the opposite, sex as gross. Now, what we tend to do, some of us in this room might have done this, is we push the pendulum far the other way because we see all of the sexual brokenness in the world. We see or we've either experienced ourselves personally and we, we were afraid of it or we've been abused. And, and so what we do is we, we push the pendulum away, away from sex as God and we push it to sex as gross in order to try to uh, even the planes. Um, our church fathers even did this. I'm going to give you some examples of some of the church fathers. Uh, Tertullian was said to prefer extinction to the human race over sexual intercourse. These are recorded words of our church fathers. Origen castrated himself in order to overcome sexual urges. Gregory of Nyssa said that Adam and Eve did not have sexual desires and that if the fall had not happened, the human race would have reproduced by means of vegetation. Jerome, he would throw himself into thorny bushes if he had any kind of sexual desires. Now these are extreme, but this is what happens when you see a gift of God and you don't understand it and you view it as gross. I've heard some stories of moms telling their daughters on the night of their wedding, don't do this and don't do that with your, your husband. Only have sex only to have children. Sex is only to reproduce. There might be marriages in here that are awkward and, and, and you feel like sex is gross because maybe one partner has experienced sexual abuse and so the other partner's not free and so there's this brokenness in your marriage because of a view that sex is gross. But here's the problem with the sex is gross. It doesn't bring a balanced side to the pendulum. It doesn't bring a freedom of what sex is supposed to be, what it's meant to be as a gift. It ironically does the same thing as sex as God because see, the reality is that either if you're sex as God or sex as gross, they're both based in idolatry. Sex as God is the idolatry of pleasure and uh, you know, heightened sensitivity and sex as gross is the idolatry of control. You want to be in control of something that you feel out of control in. And so you put these limitations that God never desired for, for sex to have. Both views do the same thing. Both aim to distort our view of sex. Both aim to inflate our view of sex. Either sex is everything or sex is not that big of a deal. It's nothing. Both aim to delegitimize the role of sex in our lives. Both are aimed to destroy us. Both are idols. And if you wrestle with the sex is gross, just like I said, God is glorious, so you don't have to look elsewhere if you view sex as God. Well, here's the beauty. God is good, and so you don't have to be in control 
if you view sex as gross. And I want to say specifically in the areas of marriages that wrestle with this and you're afraid to give yourself to each other freely, I want to tell you there's freedom to be found if you let go of the sex is gross, if you let go of the control, the fear that you have in your marriage, if you understand that God is good and he's in control, then you can relinquish your control and you can find freedom in your marriage. Or maybe, maybe it's a future relationship. Maybe you're single and you're, you're afraid of that. I don't know, whatever it is. It's okay to let go of that idol of control because God is good and God is glorious. The last last viewpoint is we said sex can either be is God or sex can be gross, but obviously sex is a gift. Sex is a gift from God. Now, we're not going to we're not going to talk about that this morning particularly because in a couple of weeks we're going to talk about the gift of sex. But the reason why I want to mention it here is because there is a pendulum and there is a straight line to walk. It's neither gross nor God. It's a gift from God. And you see this clearly in the story of Genesis. Here you have God, the creator, the father, walking Eve down to Adam. It's the first marriage that's ever taken place. He walks Eve, the daughter, down to the son. And then he tells them, go, be fruitful, and multiply, and have mandatory fun. And the reason why it's, it's good for us today is because we're all here, because thankfully Adam and Eve did what God commanded. And so as we unpackage this in, the, in the, the following weeks, my encouragement to you is there, there are some of us on the gross side, and there are some of us on the God side, or there's some of us that kind of go in between, and as we go through this sermon series, the, the hope is that the Holy Spirit sets you free from one of these two idols. The hope is that we have a right view of sexuality, that we understand what God intended sex to be, and we rightly use it as a gift, and we don't idolize it either too much or too little. Does that make sense? All right. This is kind of a heavy topic, kind of intense. But I hope that helps us understand our error and helps us understand what God intended for sexuality for us. Will you stand with me this morning? Now here's the beautiful thing about what we're about to do in communion. The only reason we can say with absolute boldness and absolute uh, sincerity and certainty that, that sex is a gift is because of what we're about to do in remembrance of Jesus. See, without the sacrifice of Christ, we would be either given to one of these two errors of understanding and sexuality. We would be given over to the fall and living in a brokenness. But because of what Christ did for us, we've been set free from the fall. We've been set free from this sin. We've been set free from the error of either God or gross. We've been set free to live in the right view of sexualized sin as, as sex is a gift. And so as we take communion this morning, what I think we should do is, it might be a little awkward to do in groups, but I want us to individually say, God, thank you for the freedom that you've given us from the error of sexuality. 
Thank you that you set us free from not having to be bound to one of these two sides. Thank you, Jesus, that you made a way for us to be redeemed from the fall. Um, And so we're going to do that in communion this morning. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll go to the, the tables this morning. Jesus, thank you so much for your leading and your guiding. Thank you, Jesus, that you've given us freedom. Thank you that we're not bound anymore to have to sin. Thank you that we, as your disciples, can live in the freedom that you offer us through the cross and through the resurrection. But this morning, we remember your body that was beaten and bruised for us. We remember your blood that was spilt for us and shed. That not only did you take away the sins that we have committed maybe sexually, but you've also freed us from the sins that have been committed against us sexually. Your cross has the power to both set us free from what we did and from what was done to us. Nothing else does that. So Jesus, we go to the table remembering with gratitude in our hearts thanking you for what you you did. You paid the ultimate price. Jesus, help us this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. If if we're struggling, if we're wrestling on one of these two errors, will will you help us this morning to be set free? Will you help us not to live in a yoke of slavery? Will you help us to understand the freedom that we have In Jesus alone. In Jesus' name, amen.